Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. My name is Sharon, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Agnico Eagle First Quarter Results 2020 Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Thank you. Mr. Sean Boyd, you may begin your conference. Thank you, operator, and uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome, and thank you for joining our first quarter 2020 uh, conference call. Um, this presentation does include forward-looking statements, so just want everybody to be forewarned. Um, hopefully, wherever you are, we're doing this remotely as well, so hopefully wherever you are, um, you're safe, you're doing well, and your family is doing well. Uh, because we're doing this uh, remotely, um, during the q and I'll direct the questions, and hopefully that goes uh, smoothly because we've got um, our senior staff uh, working from home uh, patched in online. Um, but as I go through the presentation, I want to spend some time just on our thinking and mindset around the challenges around uh, COVID-19 and how we've managed it, really how we're thinking about the business and positioning the business as we sort of move through um, the issues around uh, COVID-19. I think, as you know, um, we've been challenged more than most companies uh, in the quarter, having seven of our eight operating mines uh, reduced to minimum activities. We'll get into uh, that, how we managed it, how we managed that with our people, uh, what it meant for our assets. We'll talk a little bit about that. But as we went through it, um, clearly the focus was the um, health and safety of our employees, the well-being um, of our employees, the comfort level of the families. Um, so we've been able to manage through that very successfully. And while we were doing that, um, and even on minimum activities, we were still able uh, to position uh, the assets and look after some um, issues that uh, we had been managing uh, through Q1 so that we could have a strong uh, second half. Um, in terms of our actual response to the pandemic, um, uh, as you said, uh, as we've said many times before, it's a long-term business. You have to think long-term. Although um, the pandemic is devastating, there's a lot of loss associated with it. Um, things will improve, and so the question is: is manage through um, the pandemic and look beyond it. Um, our view is things will likely never get back to where they were. A lot of the protocols and measures that we've put in place will likely have to continue um, for many months into the future, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But we think as an industry, the gold industry is, is better positioned than most in terms of managing and in terms of um, getting back uh, to a situation closer to normal where we can take advantage of um, a price deck uh, for our product that's uh, as strong as it's been in, in seven or eight years. So that provides certain advantages and also dictates the strategy. So as we said, we've been very focused around um, 
hygiene, uh, around screening, uh, around physical distancing. And uh, in terms of positioning, as I've said, the industry is in a much better position than most because our physical distancing challenges are relatively short duration um, in things like cages where we're in close quarters for a few minutes at a time. It's not like we have as an industry extended period of times where we're uh, right on top of each other. So we can actually manage the business um, uh, a lot better than most industries. We'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the mines and how we've dealt with this on, on some of the mines. Uh, we've also we've all also employed testing, uh, which is another layer of protection. We've tested all of our Nunavut employees. We've tested all of our employees in Finland. Uh, we hope to expand that testing. We were involved in a, a pilot project in Nunavut. Um, that's how we got access to the uh, quick testing method. That testing method has now been approved by provincial and the federal governments. Uh, we're in a good position there. As we said, we're looking to expand that, hopefully bring that to Valdor. I think the other thing that stood out for us here is really on the ESG side. Uh, as we've said before, we found ourselves in a position where in, the, in a lot of the areas we operate, we're in a much better position than even the governments and the communities uh, to provide critical services and to provide critical help to the communities. Uh, for example, in Mexico, we actually have more healthcare capacity at our mines than many of the communities do. Uh, we have as many doctors as the communities do. We have more uh, sophisticated medical equipment like ventilators. Uh, we have more ambulances. So we're in a position to uh, help those communities. We did set up a separate facility uh, for the government at the government's request. We opened up an old mining camp uh, to provide, if needed, in the community an isolation center. So on the social side of things, we've been doing things like that, but also uh, and none of it were providing food hampers on a regular basis to over 450 families in multiple communities. Uh, we're able to transport uh, key supplies to those communities on our flights from the south. Uh, we've been investing in food banks. So um, all of this is something we would do uh, normally anyways as, as part of the way we think. But it's also, I think, focused governments and communities on the benefits of mining as the governments and the communities are looking for leadership, looking for assistance. Um, and that actually builds the case for mining. And I think many of you know we started a We Make Mining Work social media advocacy campaign last year, and this really hammers home um, that message. But I also think it's important as we move forward, because all of us have no idea how this is going to play out. And one of the things we saw was that different governments approach mining um, from a different perspective. Some called it essential, some called it non-essential. Uh, we were in regions where initially it was determined non-essential, but I think the governments realized, particularly in Quebec, that it was, although initially determined non-essential, it was a high-priority industry that not only was able to benefit the communities, but also was able to provide well-paying jobs, uh, pay significant tax, uh, dollars towards the government and I think one of our jobs here as we go forward is to ensure that we continue to make the case for mining because we don't know if there's a second wave coming we don't know how long this is going to go and that's why we've been very careful with the restarts is to take leadership demonstrate this works demonstrate that we can protect our employees demonstrate that we can make our 
employees, uh, families comfortable so that um, if there is a second wave or this thing continues for a while, um, we can continue to do what we do well in the communities and continue to operate our businesses. So we're very focused on, on those initiatives. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that um, as we get into um, some of the uh, specifics on the sites. As far as the first quarter, the, the big impact was really uh, nine days of shutdowns at our Quebec operations. Um, two of our Quebec mines were our best cash flow generators historically. So um, for nine days in the quarter, the back end of the quarter, two of our best cash generating mines uh, were down, as was Goldex. Uh, it also impacted our operations in Nunavut because one of the things we did do in Nunavut is to protect the communities in Nunavut because that's a high risk. Those communities are at high risk. Um, they have a history of lung issues and poor health. Uh, they live in quote close quarters. So we made a decision earlier on, early on, to isolate our operations from the communities and have our uh, Nunavut workforce go home. And that continues uh, to this day. We're still working on plans to bring them back. We're still working on plans to fill in uh, while they're still at home, uh, allowing us to continue to ramp up. So that was a key also um, a strategy, but it also did impact our operations. I'll talk a little bit about that. But we've restarted um, in Quebec. We'll talk about that. And we're also ramping up in none of it, which is all about really positioning the business for the second half where we expect to return to production levels and uh, cost levels to those that we saw um, as we closed uh, 2019 very strong in the fourth quarter of last year. We're also focused on free cash flow generation. Our overall CapEx numbers will come down from roughly 740 to 690, so that'll certainly help in terms of generating free cash flow. And we still have a lot of confidence in our business and we've maintained our dividend, our quarterly dividend at 20 cents uh, US uh, per share. As far as an operational update, um, the focus was number one priority, deal with COVID-19 and the impacts, uh, look after our employees, try to manage a business where we were uh, shutting down basically the minimum activity, seven of our eight mines. So we're dealing with thousands of employees in multiple communities. That wasn't easy. As we've said in my 35 years, this is the busiest sort of seven or eight weeks I've ever had. Uh, I think just based on the complexity of all the things that are involved in managing through this. But uh, we didn't lose sight of what we needed to do at the assets. The teams did an amazing job um, at sort of managing uh, things they needed to do at the asset level. Uh, everybody knows that we had plans to upgrade infrastructure uh, at the West Mine at Laurent. Whatever we had planned to do, we got done. Uh, in the first quarter. In fact, we were actually, before we had to suspend operations, we actually were in the West Mine area developing. We've actually just taken the first production blast in the West Mine area within the last 24 hours. So, um, so far so good as we continue to uh, ramp up uh, at Laurent. And we're also looking at ways that we can increase the uh, mining rate at the neighboring property at Laurent, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the Laurent section. At Meliadine, the job, one of the main jobs was to uh, fix the uh, feeding system to the crushing plant. Um, that was repaired um, in March. We had actually been running the plant at over 4,000 tons a day prior to having to reduce activities there. Um, so we had good indications before we were impacted by COVID. 
um, that things would uh, work well with the repairs. Ultimately, we're getting a new unit in, but the uh, the repairs have gone well. The mill's actually operating at 85% capacity from underground ore and stockpile as we continue to ramp up in the mine area. We'll talk a little bit about that. At Meadowbank, the focus was just uh, getting uh, caught up and uh, catching up on equipment maintenance backlog, getting the lake bed material out of the open pit, uh, creating more mining surfaces. Uh, we've been running at 50% in our mining rate due to reduced activities there. And as we move into the second half, we, we expect to be back to normal levels at, uh, in Nunavut at both of the sites. Uh, um, we're really excited about exploration uh, in the quarter. Uh, I think what we're seeing there is, uh, we've mentioned this before, is there seems to be a lot of life left in these old mining camps, a lot more potential. We had been saying that in the past with respect to East Goldie, and we've been saying that with respect to what we were seeing on the old Bousquet property at LZ5, but we're now seeing it again, interestingly enough, um, at La Ronde. And La Ronde uh, is blessed with the thickest package of favorable rock in that whole sector. When you go from Doyon, the old Cambior, I am Gold, to Bousquet, which was Barrick, to La Ronde to the east, uh, which is ours, um, we were blessed with the thickest package of rock. So we always had multiple lenses in that with various types of mineralization. And what we were seeing in the West Zone, which we've talked about in the past, is a repeat of what we saw 25 years ago in terms of um, small north-south fractures that were filled with a lot of visible gold that uh, were situated parallel to our drilling, so we never really picked them up. And that's why we're seeing that upgrading in the West Mine area. But we've actually seen something else that we saw many, many years ago. We're actually seeing what looks like the reappearance of the 20 North Zinc South Lens, uh, which is massive sulfide. Um, we're seeing decent thicknesses. Uh, we're waiting assays, but we're seeing massive sulfide over sort of true thicknesses of 8 to 10 meters, uh, which is, suggests lots of zinc, uh, lots of silver, uh, still need to do the assays, but it's situated in an area which makes sense. It's on the eastern side of the deposit. It's still wide open. Um, so we've got a program to continue the drilling off to the east, and uh, it wouldn't surprise us as we have the reappearance of that lens uh, below three kilometers, which could make it interesting. Those lenses tend to have a lot of tons in them. Um, so it's early. remains to be seen, but it uh, shows you that there's a lot of life left in this camp. At Canadian Malarctic, um, we continue to drill East Goldie. I think East Goldie is important because just with Odyssey and East Malartic, it was never going to work. It was too low grade on its own. It just didn't make sense. Uh, East Goldie, given the tonnage, uh, given the uptick in grade, the better grades, uh, gives us a chance now. Uh, it's still early. Uh, we continue to get good results. We're getting uh, decent thicknesses in a higher grade core but we've only drilled it on spacings of about 150 meters. Uh, the um, plan and strategy now over the next 18 months is to tighten up that drill spacing uh, to about 75 meters, and hopefully we continue to confirm the continuity and the geometry of the deposit uh, so that we can upgrade uh, the resource classification and so that we can understand what's possible and what ultimately that Yamana and Ignico can put together uh, for that opportunity at Canadian Malarctic. And Santa Gertrudis, we put out some 
pretty good holes. We've got some recent drill holes, um, which continue to look good. Um, so that's going to be a focus of our Mexican business to try to understand how that fits in uh, as we move forward. Just briefly on the operating results, um, again, these were impacted by temporary shutdowns and reduced activities. Um, I'll just highlight two here. Uh, Goldex, even without nine days at the end of March, uh, was still above its budget. Very good productivity there. And Kitsila um, has uh, remained open. We had a uh, temporary uh, shutdown of the underground line. We'll talk about that. But uh, even with that, uh, they were above their budget as well. So uh, good performance from those mines. On uh, the financial highlights, EPS a bit noisy. Uh, that's really driven by um, the weakening of our local currencies against the U.S. dollar, particularly the Canadian dollar, which on January 1 was 1 1.3, um, end of March 1.42. So that had the impact of um, impacting our deferred tax liabilities. So we had to add back 18% to our headline earnings. And also we had mark-to-market -market on our foreign exchange and diesel hedges uh, of about $0.09. Cents. So normalized earnings of uh, $0.23 cents per share. So not bad given that we were impacted in the back half of March uh, due to COVID. On the financial position, uh, at the start of this, we didn't really understand or know how this would unfold. We just wanted to be ultra careful, uh, no magic to the number. We decided to draw down a billion dollars on our credit line of $1.2 billion. We've paid back uh, half a million. We expect to pay the balance as we continue to ramp up uh, our production over the next uh, few months. Uh, we did uh, pay down our maturity on April the 7th, $360 million. Um, we did term $200 million of that out, uh, which given the volatility in the markets and the way that treasuries were moving around, our team did a very good job because that was not easy. Um, in fact, the week that we did that debt deal, there was only, I think, about six debt deals done that week in all of the U.S. market. And normally there's dozens and dozens of these things done. Um, so we got it done, average of 11 years at 2.83%. Um, if we had waited a week, um, the deals that were done a week later, they were much better credits than ours. They were paying for the same term about a percent more in interest. So our team did a good job. Uh, getting that done. So our debt, our overall debt came down um, in terms of net debt because we did pay down $160 million of that um, over and above the term out uh, to reduce that. We did get a credit upgrade by TBRS and we did have uh, Fitch uh, issue their inaugural credit rating on us with a rating of triple uh, B with a stable outlook. So all of that again um, is positive as we look forward. So I'll go through this uh, fairly quickly and we'll open it up uh, for questions. I think Laurent, as we mentioned, the emphasis was really just doing the ground support so we can get back into the West Mine. As you know, that's a higher grade area. Uh, we have, um, this is seen last year when we're in it, significant upgrade of 30 to 50% in contained gold uh, due to the uh, north-south fractures and a lot of visible gold in that system. So it's important to get back in there. Um, that drives production, drives production growth as we go forward. Uh, so I think that was important to get back there. Uh, the key there as we deal with COVID, um, as we looked at our Quebec operations and began to call people back, 
as the Quebec government on April 15th allowed the reopening of mining. Um, just the process. Each of the employees were called individual by their supervisors. We sent them a video which outlined in visual form what they were going to see when they came back to the sites in terms of screening, in terms of hygiene, in terms of physical distancing. And I think one of the key things which is um, uh, from a mining perspective really jumps out at you is the, the way we're managing the cage. And each of the employees enter the cage, we're operating that at 50% capacity. Each of the employees enter the cage one by one. Uh, they're separated by a curtain. They can't face each other. They can't look at each other. Um, they can't talk to each other. Um, so they're in that cage for five, five plus minutes. Um, so, you know, that's been well accepted. We had 90% take up on the return to work. It's all voluntary. We're not forcing anybody to come back to work. Not only do the employees have to be comfortable, the uh, families have to be comfortable. So. What we found when people returned, they were excited to back, be back to work, excited to see uh, their fellow employees, uh, so things are going well. Um, as we go forward, I guess the big question is, well, okay, these types of things may extend uh, for much longer and many months. You know, how do we offset the lack, or the drop in productivity from some of these uh, uh, new measures? Uh, we believe that, um, well, we already started a program to understand sort of the optimal size of our workforce. And the fact that we've had to scale back at seven of our eight mines gives us a better feel as we reintroduce people slowly what the optimal size should be. And most of the people that haven't been put back in yet would be the contract workforce. So we're hoping we can be more efficient with that contract workforce. Um, that could introduce some savings to possibly offset uh, some of this um, uh, productivity loss through these new measures, um, but it's still early. We're still learning, uh, but we're, we're confident that um, we're going to get a, a really good feel of how this is going to work going forward, uh, largely because we've, we've been forced to scale back, and we're actually doing more productivity with less workers in places like Nunavut than we were doing before. So we really have to let this play out um, as we go forward. So. Jumping to Canadian Malarctic, uh, we did start that mill uh, shortly after um, things were allowed to reopen. We restarted it on April the 17th, running about 60,000 uh, tons a day, running off a stockpile as we ramp up the mining activities. So that restart has gone well. We mentioned Goldex. The productivity is, is really driven by really good performance in the rail there. So that was a great add and a great use of old technology, just adapting it in a, in a new format and tailoring it to that particular operation. And we're also benefiting from higher grades and more tons in the south zone. And the south zone, I think, is going to be driving um, good solid performance at Goldex for several quarters as we move forward. At Meadowbank, the focus was just managing the communities as it was at Meliadine, uh, having the Inuit workforce go home, isolate the operations um, from uh, the communities, going to a 28-day rotation from 14. Again, that was all voluntary. We're not forcing people to go up for 28 days. We had more volunteers than we had spaces, um, so that's a good sign. That rotation's working well. Ultimately, we have to come back to something less than 28 days. That's a long period of time to be up there, uh, but that help, helps the productivity. 
because we're having fewer changeovers. Um, so I think that's a plus and that's positive as we work through uh, the issues around COVID. The focus there was just catch up on maintenance, remove the lake bed material, open up more faces uh, in the open pit. Uh, we went down to 50% of our mining rate. Um, we stopped the mill, uh, we're building a sufficient stockpile. We've just resumed long haul trucking uh, to bring the ore to Meadowbank. Uh, we've done a lot of improvements on getting the parts from Meadowbank to the Amarook site. Uh, there's still work to do at this one. So of the three, Laron, Meliadine, and Amarook, we always said this was sort of Q1, Q2. The others were more Q1. Um, so there's still a bit of work to do and a bit of catch up to do because of COVID, but they've made a lot of good progress there. And it's set up for a much stronger second half as we resume production and get up to over 9,000 uh, tons a day in the second half. At Meliadine, as we said, apron issue feeders were, were resolved. Uh, they function, they work well. Uh, but even in February, I got to give the team credit, even with no apron feeder, uh, the workaround, we were able to do 3,300 tons a day in February, even with the workaround. Um, so getting the apron feeder repaired uh, with manufactured parts, we have the spare plates in from the manufacturer. Uh, we should get the other unit in in July, August when the barges come in. Um, so, so far so good there. Um, we're running that plant now at about uh, 3,500 tons a day. Uh, Q3 about 4,000 tons a day. Uh, Q4 about 4,600 tons a day. We've started to pump out the, um, the additional mining horizon. Um, so we're in a position to continue to move that part of the mine forward as we pump it out and get to developing that area. So that's what's going to drive the additional tons in Q4, but also that's one of the higher grade areas of the underground mine. So that's why we're comfortable on the Meliadine uh, production uh, profile. So. Um, as we look at um, Meliadine and we look at um, Meadowbank, one of the things that we have to do is reintegrate the Nunavut workforce. Uh, at this point, they're not ready to come back. Um, I think there's still anxiety. They have had one case of COVID-19 in Nunavut. It appeared uh, this week. It's in Pond Inlet at the northern tip of uh, Baffin Island, so not near any of our operations, but there's still some unease and anxiety there. So. Uh, we can actually ramp up, uh, we can use um, the contract workers, we can use uh, employees that we had uh, planned to have come in in the summer uh, to do some of the, the duties that uh, we had our Inuit workforce. They're still a key part of our operations. We want them back, but we only want them back when it's safe for them to come back and they're comfortable coming back. At uh, Kitsila, again, we said it's a, uh, above budget. Um, they have been the only mine that's really maintained the processing through the entire quarter. They did have an employee test positive. They isolated the employee right away when he was feeling not well. Um, they did contract tracing. They tested immediately the people that he had contact in uh, prior to him not feeling well. All of those tests came back negative. The employee is better now. We have actually tested all of our employees in Finland uh, no other issues there, and uh, I think the Finnish team uh, did a really good job reacting, responding, uh, following protocol, uh, taking isolation steps, uh, contacting public health authorities, working with them 
to do the contact tracing and ensure that the spread uh, was not um, more widespread than uh, just impacting one employee. So good work on behalf of Kitala. And in the southern business, Mexico has taken the position that in April, um, all non-essential businesses were to go to minimum activities. We're still doing some uh, getting gold out of the leach pads um, at those operations, particularly La India. Uh, the government has subsequently extended that now to the end of May. Uh, they have made um, a, they do have um, an opportunity that if you're operating a business in a region where uh, the COVID-19 is not a major issue, where there's very few cases, that they will consider allowing those industries and those businesses to start back up. Uh, that date would, could be May 18th. So we're certainly in an area right now where um, there's not a lot of cases there. Uh, so there may be an opportunity that we can get back to work uh, before the end of May, early June. So we're going to continue to monitor that. Our team's working very closely with the Secretary of the Economy that's responsible for the mines uh, to highlight what we're able to do in the community and the fact that we can still protect our employees and, uh, and run our business. So we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, operator, if you can open the lines for questions, we'll try to see how this works remotely. I'll try to direct the questions to those of uh, members of the team that are online that can respond uh, to the questions. Thank you very if much. If you'd like to ask a question at this time, please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. If you'd like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. First question comes from Farhad Tariq with Credit Suisse. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, just the first one, a clarification. The 480 to 500,000 ounces per quarter in the second half, that incorporates uh, any productivity losses. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And, and then uh, my other question, um, you know, second half of the year is obviously looking very good from a free cash flow perspective. Uh, you don't have any debt maturity. The revolver will get repaid. Uh, just high level, what are some of the free cash flow capital allocation priorities? Well, I think the focus uh, on that side really doesn't change. Uh, for us, it was still always to find that balance between uh, reducing debt, uh, essentially improving financial flexibility, uh, reinvesting in our highest quality projects, not the entire pipeline. The emphasis is still trying to stage that out. And that's why, we're, you know, we're continuing fairly actively drilling some of the key projects to get a better feel for the relative ranking and prominence of the projects within the pipeline. And then uh, clearly we're looking to uh, move the dividend up. And, um, we, we, no one really knows how this will all unfold, but I think as we said, uh, we alluded to at the start, um, you know, this has been devastating, uh, you know, for many people, but also for industries. And a lot of industries are going to take a long time to come back. Um, the mining industry, particularly the gold mining industry, is one that can come back fairly quickly into a much better pricing environment for the product. And given the stimulus that's been thrown you know, at the economies, um, the prospects for gold are pretty good. Um, we're not sure how. Again, there's no guarantees on this, but um, I think uh, it it.
kind of reminds me a bit of, now I'm dating myself, but it kind of reminds me a bit of 7980, um, where the gold price moved fairly quickly um, to a level that uh, companies didn't really anticipate. And the amount of cash that was generated by the industry in a very short period of time was huge. And I saw that when I first walked into a Geco in 1983 um, as an auditor, and they had uh, as much, almost as much cash as their market cap. And that's the year that they instituted the first cash dividend because of that. And so, you know, I would expect gold to hit a new high in U.S. dollars. It's hit a new high in almost in, in every other major currency. And um, so the industry is going to do really well at 1700. It's going to do tremendously well at 2000. The question then becomes, um, your question becomes even more important at that point. Because what we need as an industry is the discipline to make sure that the bulk of that gets returned to shareholders. And uh, you can see that Paul Penna made the right move way back when, because he had way more cash than he could actually put to good use. And he decided uh, when it wasn't the norm back then um, to start the dividend. And even in 1980, we actually paid a special dividend at one point. So that's going to continue to be our focus if we're fortunate enough uh, to continue at 1700 plus and maybe 2000 plus at some point. Thank you. Next question comes from Ralph Profitti with Aid Capital. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, Sean, it's good to see the sort of you know, turnaround and things going well uh, in the west area of La Ronde. Um, if I can maybe ask a question as you sort of put some focus on this expansion uh, at LZ5. We've seen the grades come down to about two grams a ton in the last few quarters. I was wondering if that's sort of a, a, a good go-forward assumption um, on some of the grades that we can associate with this potential expansion. Yeah, I think that's roughly where we um, are looking at. I don't see we're, we're not sort of forecasting a, a big bump in grade. That's generally what you get there. I think the strategy there is that the reason that we actually went there um, in the first place was not just to get 100,000 or 200,000 ounces and make a little bit of money. Um, ultimately, there's several hundred thousand ounces over there that were left at a much lower gold price by the previous owners. Um, it was almost similar to the thinking and strategy around Goldex. Spend 90 million to reopen it after the issues we had in 2011. Um, take a view that we only had three years um, of mine life for that 90 million and we'll probably end up getting 10 to 12 years. Um, so we're not looking for grade bump, but we're looking for more tons, uh, which is good return, uh, good cash flow, uh, particularly at these gold prices. And the extra benefit we've had from there is the ability to test our automated equipment, test it in an environment which isn't as complex as Laurent, because I guess one of the things that this issue and pandemic has highlighted, the more you can use automated equipment, uh, the better off your employees are, it's safer, you can respect physical distancing. So all of those were a real bonus on LZ5. Uh, Yvonne, I don't know if you have anything to add in terms of um, mining and moving forward on just ramping up some tons and what we're seeing over there. Yeah, I think the uh, just moving up in tonnage has been the, the biggest focus. I think we've... Uh, uh, rearranged the uh, the engineering team to focus on Lerone 
at depth and uh, basically understanding the potential in that area. So uh, the group has been focused on some satellite zones, higher grade satellite zones that have, were left behind in the barrack days. So these are, uh, as we go further at depth, uh, they're also integrating some of these ideas in uh, future Life of Mine. And we'll update as we uh, get more information on those. Okay, great. Um, separate question on, on Kitala and uh, you know the, the, the prudence of delaying the shaft expansion. I've seen in the couple of quarters towards late 2019, you sort of hit that 500,000 tons on a quarterly basis. I was wondering, exclusive of the shaft expansion, do you think you can, you can push uh, operations there to get to that 2 million ton uh, annualized rate without the expansion? Uh, I'll just start and then I'll, I'll get Yvonne to fill in some of the details. Um, the shaft um, project uh, was impacted by COVID. It really wasn't a decision um, to uh, sort of suspend it outside of COVID. The right. shaft sinking contractor, the, the workers were Canadian. So we needed to make sure those Canadians got home um, as this thing started to uh, ramp up. So the focus was on making sure they got home. Um, our team in Finland has been in touch with the Canadian ambassador to Finland to uh, start working on uh, a, a program to get the Canadian workers back so that we can get that uh, project back on track. But Yvonne, maybe you can fill in some of the details. Yeah, specifically to your question, it's a good point. Uh, the Both the mill and the mine uh, presently and probably till the end of 2021 will be in a position to get it up to that uh, 500,000 tons uh, per quarter. Um, so that's that's a good thing. Um, uh, as we go further, uh, the sooner the better the shaft is completed, the cost structure underground uh, changes drastically. So there's a lot of uh, um, focus on trying to complete this project as soon as we can uh, because of the, uh, uh, the magnitude of the cost reduction uh, as we're starting to mine below like uh, five, 600 levels, the 10 kilometer factors on the hauling is getting a little bit uh, uh, more challenging. I see, I see. Well, that's good clarity, thank you. Next question comes from Greg Barnes with TD Securities. Yes, thank you. Sean or Yvonne, can you talk a little bit more about the uh, sailing water issues at Meliodine and the pace backfill, what you've done to address uh, the issues that you talked about in Q4 results. Yeah, I think on the pace backfill and uh, reduced activities there, we kept mining. So it was important to uh, continue to mine, uh, continue to process. And while we were mining at reduced rates and processing a little bit less, I think we we're processing around 3,000 tons a day versus the plan at four, we were able to catch up on some voids and backfill. We've also used consolidated rock fill. Um, so we've done a really good job just catching up on that, which is important. As far as saline water, it's more about really permits. Um, we continue to engage uh, the, the authorities. I think everybody acknowledges that uh, the best solution is a pipeline rather than have us truck uh, water and dump that water during the summer season because those trucks uh, kick up an awful lot of dust. So um, we've been engaged at the... Um, the local level uh, with our Inuit partners and the Inuit associations, with the Nunavut government at the federal level who's also involved in that permitting uh, to make that case. So we still expect to get those permits later this year. We still expect to have a pipeline in place. 
uh, next year. Uh, we've got storage capacity uh, for two years. Um, the cost is, is capital. Uh, from an operating cost perspective, it'll be cheaper. Um, so it's really the answer to make, um, it's the right environmental solution, and it's really the answer to uh, be more productive in terms of water management. Water management's kind of the biggest issue now versus where, where things were at 10 years ago from a mining perspective. So this would certainly help. So we, don't, we haven't had any pushback on that. People understand that's the best way to go. It's just a matter of going through the permit process. Thanks, Sean. Next question comes from Carrie McCreary with Canaccord Genuities. Hi, good morning, guys. Uh, good morning, Sean. Good morning. Uh, Carrie, you may have to speak up a bit. We're having trouble uh, hearing you. Okay, just is that better? That's a lot better. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, maybe a longer-term question. You mentioned, you know, being potentially in a healthy gold price environment here. Just wondering how you think about your, you know, project pipeline beyond, you know, the phase two at Amaruk and Melody, and you know, are there projects there that, you know, you think can move forward or? Do you think you'd need to supplement with supplement that with M and A at some point? Um, well, I think if you look at how we built the business since '05, we've done a lot of smaller deals. So we're certainly focused um, in terms of our evaluation work, uh, still monitoring sort of single asset projects. But there's nothing out there we feel compelled to own at the moment. Um, you know, people say, "Hey, maybe this is an opportunity to be proactive and maybe aggressive during." You know, this period, we don't see that at all. Uh, we haven't really sped up our project evaluation work. It's just been sort of uh, disciplined and measured, just trying to understand things. Uh, but what we're really trying to do uh, ahead of that is just understand, like, what do we have at Kirkland Lake? You know, there's likely a buildable mine there at Upper Beaver, but how does it fit? Um, you know, we continue to watch with interest what our neighbor is doing in terms of drill results on their structures, so I think that camp has a lot of potential. Uh, where is that, where should that asset land? Um, you know, that's a question that has to be resolved at some point. Uh, we like it. Our exploration team has always liked it. They've liked it for 10 years, even when Charlie Page had it at Queenston. Um, certainly the gold price helps, but it's, it has to stand on its own. And so we would have to stack that up against uh, Things like the underground at Malartic, uh, you know, how that one fits in. Uh, two years ago, that one was not going to make it. Um, with East Goldie, it's certainly got a lot more potential. But again, as we said, it's still early. Um, that has the potential to extend the life of Malartic uh, for quite a while. Um, and with East Goldie, you have the potential, uh, when you add in Odyssey and East Malartic, you have the potential for a fairly sizable underground mine at some point, but in order to determine what that is exactly, we need to drill it. So I think what we've told our team is that the drill priorities, that your drill priorities should be focused on the pipeline, and we need to understand that pipeline. Um, and so the focus on the drill priorities is Laurent. Are, these, are there new zones emerging at depth? Wouldn't surprise us, given the history, uh, given the favorable rock package, given the thickness of that, um, the fact is we're drilling into an area we really hadn't drilled in in the past. Does this mean it goes much further east? It may. So, you know, these are the types of things we're trying to fit in. But I don't, I don't sense that um, 
we're not um, we don't have the the appetite for a massive building phase. Uh, we don't think it's necessary. Uh, we'd rather think uh, the strategy worked. So are there other things out there we could add at a decent price and work and work into the pipeline? But in order to determine whether those are any good, we need to understand our own pipeline better. So it'll be more measured, continue to be measured. Okay, great, thank you. And maybe just on Malartic, um, any any advance on the discussions around the royalties there that you can comment on? No, we just put that on hold. I don't think, um, uh, I think the position that both Yaman and Igniko are taking is that we need to think about it uh, as uh, how does it look under the existing conditions, making no assumptions that those conditions could change. Um, and the good thing about that, um, when you actually own it 100% with a partner, uh, you direct every drill hole, you, you apply every budget, uh, every dollar that you want to spend on it, and uh, you determine the pace, and you've got it in the hands of some pretty good underground mining companies that have experience. So we're going to work at it, at, work on it at a pace that makes sense, but we're going to drill it, and uh, we need to tighten up the spacing, as we said, uh, but although early, um, our guys like it. Great. Thank you. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. We have a question from Tanya Jekunsicek with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, morning. I just wanted to come back to none of it, if I could, for either Sean or, or Yvonne. Maybe just talk a little bit about, I know you're, you've, you've got a reduced workforce right now. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you're looking at, at, the, at the requirements that you need to ramp up to, to capacity um, to get there for the second half, just on each of the sites and um, you know how you're going to get there with manpower yeah. and how you're redirecting some of the jobs? Well, you look at four, uh, I'll start, you have four to 500 employees. Um, with various skill levels. Um, so, um, you know, that is a much smaller subset when you look at, you know, which of those employees are actually involved in critical mining uh, tasks and responsibilities. Um, so these are jobs that uh, can be filled in by contractors. Some of them can be filled in by uh, our rotation in the summer. We usually do a fair amount of hiring uh, during the summer. We got a lot of take up in the summer. Uh, a lot of these jobs wouldn't take a lot in terms of training. Um, as we said, ultimately we want our none of it workforce back, but there's a way that we can manage sort of ahead of that and the strategy is really around contracts. So we've already started that process um, to, to, to assume that, you know, this may take uh, through the summer before the Inuit workforce is comfortable coming back. Um, we don't know for sure. Uh, we, we're engaged and, and, and talking to them uh, on a regular basis. But maybe, Yvonne, you can uh, sort of fill in some of the details there. Yeah, well, I think like we have to look at it from uh, each each operation standpoint. At Meliadine, uh, there's not too much concern going forward, uh, ramping up, because like we're we're already at roughly about 75% of, uh, of normal workforce at site uh, and adding uh, personnel underground mostly. Uh, we're in a position that uh, we'll, we'll uh, find through 
um, contractors some uh, resource in that area. So not too concerned at Maladeen. The, the challenges will be more uh, because the proportions of Inuit on the operation side of things is more pre predominant at, uh, at at Meadowbank. And so far, like we're more like at 55% of uh, workforce up there. But the construction industry can supply a lot of uh, uh, contractors to for heavy equipment operation. And uh, what we're seeing, uh, you don't expect uh, the Inuits to return probably for uh, a few months at least. And uh, as we ramp up in tonnage, we're going to be basically uh, uh, getting um, employees from that uh, from that group of uh, contractors out there to supply us. And, and, and just so that I understand, I, I, in the press release you mentioned that you've um, stopped on the underground project. Um, are you um, stopping and redirecting um, the employees there to underground at uh, Maliodine? Is that how it's working? Uh, no, actually, uh, well, yes and no. Some, some of the uh, um, manpower has been either returned home. The maintenance guys have been returned, have been uh, reintroduced into the site to focus on uh, backlog. Uh, so it's a variety of things, but uh, we will uh, uh, we will adapt. Uh, probably we'll probably restart some minor development work uh, towards the uh, uh, the end of Q2, Q3, and uh, Q4. Okay, and and then maybe Sean for you and I've I've been trying to get a, a handle on, on on this and you touched a little bit on it, which has been you know with the the new health and safety measures, the spatial distancing. Um, I'm trying to understand the long term impacts and, and you know to the cost structure and productivity to for the mining industry. And I've been asking all of the companies this question. You know, and I know you're doing work on it, but can maybe qualitatively give us some, you know, in indications of what you found to be your greatest challenge on on, on this basis and your best opportunity, maybe? Well, I think like, yeah, I think the greatest challenge, you know, a lot of these plants are fairly sizable, so you can operate these plants and still respect all the physical distancing measures. Uh, the pressure points um, in the mines are generally at the front gate because uh, there's limited access and limited entrances. Um, so it's that screening process. So the way that we've managed the screening process is you've got to stagger the shifts. And so you don't have as many people showing up at the same time as you normally do to wave hello to the uh, security guard as they pass through. Uh, now there's, for example, at Malartic, there's a series of trailers where you have to actually go through um, uh, physical screening and also a series of questions. So you have to stagger to go through that. So you can manage that without a lot of impact on costs. The employees have to adjust to a different shift schedule. Um, but it's really in the underground mines um, on the cage deck and in the cage. And so the question going forward again, you stagger the entry. Um, you don't have 150 people showing up, let's say for example at Leron, uh, at 8 in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, all lining up to jump into the next cage. Uh, we're staggering the shifts, but the capacity in those are half of what they normally would be. The question we have going forward is that um, that's worked. Uh, people are comfortable with it. Um, you know, can we get more productive and use that cage better by using face protection, whether it's masks, whether it's plastic shields, 
um, because we're really focused on that short-term contact. It's not like they're standing beside each other for hours, as we said, it's several minutes. Um, so we're looking at ways that we can um, maybe um, utilize those cage systems uh, better going forward. But again, it's going to take some time. So it, it's hard to quantify, but I think the real opportunity now is what we were trying to do here over the last year as we went through that building phase and we started to ramp everything up is we, we said now it's time to look at the workforce. And as you're building stuff, you know, people you know, you're adding people and your things don't really settle down to give you a chance to really take a close, hard look at things. So I think what this has done is actually allowed us to strip everything back down again and then reintroduce things very carefully. And we're hopeful at the end of this that we can do the same things we were doing before with a smaller contract workforce. And that could be the opportunity. So it's hard to quantify it now, but from our perspective, this is all manageable. And I think our people really did a good job, not just designing things specifically for our minds, but working together with their colleagues and peers and other companies to make the case, particularly to the Quebec government, that this is an industry that can actually do things well and demonstrate leadership around things like hygiene and screening and physical distancing and testing, um, which we think a lot of these things, we should probably just keep them going anyways. Um, because it makes the employees comfortable. So we'll have a better feel for this, um, you know, probably in June. Um, and so we can certainly circle back and provide more color on it at that time. Yeah. And, and, and I would assume that any additional cost, Sean, and maybe, I'm, I'm, you know, this is, you know, something for you to answer, is that, you know, you, you'll be getting benefits um, from your FX and, and fuel hedges yeah. in terms of helping to offset some of these additional costs that would uh, come through the cost structure. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that that's one thing that um, uh, when we've looked at it with the Treasury Department is that, uh, you know, it's not just the Canadian dollar, but it's all, it's the peso and it's the euro, which mm -hmm. has moved in a positive direction and the diesel price relative to what we had budgeted and expected. And so what we've really tried to do is just, um, protect levels uh, better than the budget numbers. Um, and on the FX side, do it with zero cost callers so we still have that participation up. Um, and, and that can make a difference of 40 to $50 an ounce. So um, that can have a meaningful impact um, on the unit costs as we go forward. Okay, we look forward to more information on that, Sean. But I, I agree with you, I think of all industries, the mining industry, with all its health and safety measures already in place before COVID-19, is you know is is one that uh, is very adaptable to what we have to do. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah thank you. Thanks. And but I think as an industry, we've got to you know demonstrate to you know, not just our owners, but demonstrate to our employees and our communities and the government um, that we can take leadership on this. But it 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 because that if we can remain essential. Uh, that puts the industry in a really strong position because we know other industries are going to struggle. And uh, the gold industry uh, is in this position where it's getting a good price, which could be a better price, and it's able to run at pretty close to normalized levels fairly quickly, which means on a relative basis, 
the returns that the mining, gold mining industry are going to generate um, uh, should be viewed a lot better um, on a relative basis. And uh, as generalists start to revisit, as resource funds start to get a bit of inflow, um, as many of you know, you know, these shares are still not widely owned, particularly um, with the vast pools of money in the U.S. So I think that is the opportunity. The opportunity is to run responsible businesses um, that stay disciplined as the gold price moves up, uh, generate higher returns, uh, move dividends up. Um, that's the formula for success. No guarantee, um, but you know that's the thing that certainly, uh, in our mind, as we think about strategy um, and tactics. Yeah, so more to that that second half. Uh margin expansion. So looking forward to that. Thank you. We'll leave it at that. We have our AGM today, uh, which is virtual. So we've got a few things to do before that. Uh, But um, thank you for your attention. What we've tried to do is, uh, because we've been working at home, um, we have the opportunity to um, get our teams together fairly quickly to respond to inquiries. So as we move forward, if you'd like a one-hour, one-on-one, um, to talk about some of these things in more detail, more than happy uh, to do it. So, um, again, wherever you are, uh, hopefully you're safe and your family's doing well, and we look forward to uh, engaging in person at some time down the road. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.